you know, company connection, sense of purpose, loyalty uh, is, is, a, you know, is a cratering, you know, connection to others in the workplace, cratering over the last decades. And you, you situate that against the backdrop of an epidemic of loneliness in, in this society, in the United States, and deaths of despair. It's, we're in real dire shape here. So if anybody could find a way to build that kind of connection, right, and, and evidence it through neuroscience, so it's not just lip service, it's for real, it's up here, that would be the ticket. Welcome back, everyone, to the Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization Show, the home of Googleization Nation, where we talk with HR and business thought leaders about the crazy shift going on all around us and explore the disruptive convergence of technology, business, and people. Here are your hosts, Ira Wolf and Jason Cochran. Well, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Geek Skeezers and Googleization. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. I'm Ira Wolf. Jason, unfortunately, is not with us today. Uh, he's tied up in some meetings. So if you think this is just another podcast, think again. We are the voice of the most important conversations on the future of work confronting business leaders and people today. Our goal is to bring you ways to reimagine tomorrow and explore the ever-changing convergence of people, business, and technology. Mark Twain once said, it ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. So living in what I call the post-pandemic era of never normal, a lot of things we thought we knew for sure just ain't so. And one of those things just happens to be what we talk about on Geek Skeezers and Googleization each week, leading and managing people. So take, for example, ever since I was a kid, which was a bunch of decades ago, I was taught that each of us had a left brain and a right brain. Fortunately for most of us, that's still true. What ain't true is that our left brain only fires when it comes to math and logic, and our right brain only comes alive when it comes to arts and creativity. And yet many companies still hire and managers still fire based on that myth. Or how about this one? We only use 10% of our brain. Even when that seems to be true, it's not. Or how about we all need to be better multitaskers? Here's a spoiler alert. Our brains say, no way, Jose. Or here's one of my favorites. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Personally, as an older baby boomer, I'm pretty thrilled that ain't true. Well, today I am thrilled to welcome Dr. Michael Platt to the Geek Skeezers and Googleization stage to help us sort things out about how our brain actually works, to dispel these myths once and for all, and to explore the fascinating world of neuroeconomics and neuromanagement. Michael is the author of The Leader's Brain. He's a neuroscientist. He holds appointments in the University of Pennsylvania Pearl, Pearlman School of Medicine, School of Arts and Sciences, and the Wharton School. He's director of the Wharton Neuroscience Initiative, where I had the good fortune to meet him uh, this past summer when I participated in Wharton's executive education program understanding the brain, using neuroscience to deliver better results. And just recently, Michael hosted the Wharton Neuroscience Summit in early November, which was nothing short of amazing. And I'm sure we'll be talking a little bit about that too. And in his spare time, Michael's co-founder of Cogware, a wearable technology company, and we'll be talking about that too. But before Michael joins me, it's once again time for our perfect labor storm segment. This is where we focus each week on a disruptive, surprising, or worrisome trend that we believe you should know. Because one of the topics I'm sure we're going to cover today relates to human connection and the ongoing controversy between remote and in-person work, I pulled a stat from our, one of our recent interviews with Gallup's Vibhas Ritanji. Gallup's research revealed that only 16 to 17% of employees feel connected to their culture of their organization. That's less than one out of seven. But that's not the stat that bothered, that bothered uh, Vibhas the most. The stat that keeps him and leaders up at night should be this. Only 39% of senior leaders and managers feel connected. 
that's more than double what uh, of the frontline workers and other workers. And in October 23, the 2023 TELUS Mental Health Index Survey that was just released this very this morning, 23% of, of workers report a high mental health risk, 41% report a moderate mental health risk. This results in 51 lost working days per year due to depression, 47 lost working days due to anxiety, and 42 days due to workplace, lost due to workplace conflict. So fortunately, neuroscience might have a thing or two to say about why these things are happening. And here's a hint, where people work isn't the biggest problem. If you'd like to listen to our interview with Vipas or TELUS Health's Paula Allen, that's a mouthful, you can download the replays on your favorite podcast or watch on YouTube. Just go to youtube.com forward slash Ira Wolf and check out the Geek Skeezers and Googleization playlist. There's over 300 episodes on it. And two more quick announcements before I welcome Michael. If you're interested in learning more about management myths that neuroscience is debunking, subscribe to my free weekly newsletter at irawolf.beehive.com. That's irawolf.beehiv.com. In this week's issue, I talk about rethinking busyness as we race against the clock trying to get everything done before the holidays and the start of the new year. And finally, if you're looking for an inspiring holiday gift this year, you can download my latest book, The Change Insights to Self-Empowerment. The download is free. Just go to my website, iverwolf.com, or you can give a gift with purpose this year and purchase signed copies by reaching out to me on LinkedIn, Instagram, or my website. And now it's time to welcome Michael Platt. Michael, welcome. Good to see you. Hey, hey, Ira. Good to see you in the interwebs after seeing you in real life. Yeah, that was that was a fascinating uh, day. And um, before we let you off the air here, we'll, uh, I definitely want to find out what some of your takeaways were from that because it was uh, it was a long list. And uh, and I think that was the first time since 2019 before the pandemic that you met in person, right? Yeah, that was our first in-person summit since 2019. So it was very exciting for us and I think is kind of launching uh, Wharton Neuroscience 2.0 in some sense with a, with a bold new call to action. Well, it, it was a successful launch, a little bit more than uh, Elon Musk's uh, <laughs> uh, recent <laughs> launches. Um, but no, it was, it, was, it was a super day and uh, what an incredible group of talented people. Uh, and uh, for everybody else, hopefully, uh, I, I guess next year, November is usually when you have it or sometime in the fall. That, so. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, everybody uh, keep keep that in mind. But first, um, you've had an interesting journey. We, we, we certainly want to get into what's going on in neuroscience. But tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into this, uh, because uh, I found it interesting. You're uh, I think you studied anthropology as, as a college yeah. student. And when I went to school, uh, anthropology was probably one step lower than philosophy when people would say, well, what are you going to do when you grow up? How are you going to make what kind of career do you have when you have philosophy? And it seemed that anthropology was probably even uh, yeah. on par with that or a little bit lower. And yet here you are. So tell us a little about. Your yeah, story. well, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> anthropology is like one step up from American civilization. That was a, <clears throat> a big kind of. I don't know, trash can major when I was uh, in college. But um, think about how my parents must have felt. So I, here I am, first kid in the family to go to college, um, working class kid. And like I choose anthropology <laughs> as a major. <laughs> kind of, um, uh, you know, maybe not exactly what everybody was thinking of. But um, but it really grabbed me. And 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 actually, it turned out to be really foundational because anthropology is kind of the broadest lens that you can uh, have on, on human nature. So you look at biology, you look at prehistory, culture, linguistics, all of those different fields. And so it kind of gives you a very rich foundation, although not a lot of tools to work with. So I, you know, I did my undergrad and my PhD in anthropology, but at the time I was done with my, or finishing my PhD, I realized uh, if I wanted to really understand human nature, I was going to have to be able to get in here to look under the hood uh, and see what was going on. So I, so I went to NYU and did a postdoc in neuroscience, which is essentially like a second PhD 
uh, in neuroscience. So it took a long time to do all that. Um, and But putting it together put me in a really cool position to ask some, I think, bigger questions than perhaps other people are asking in neuroscience um, about kind of what makes us tick, really. And um, I've been able to use the tools to get there. But uh, it's been a long journey. I was at Duke for 15 years in the med school. Uh, ran the Institute for Brain Sciences there for, for four or five years before coming here, which is just like kid in a candy store. You know, I get I get to play in medicine, I get to play in psychology, and I get to play in Wharton, which is the really disruptive part of this whole this whole gig, which is like, hey, how can we take the tools, insights, analytics from neuroscience and put them into service of business? Yeah. And that's what I love about this conversation, because I mean you you you, you your background wasn't biology. It wasn't medicine. It wasn't coming from the sciences in, in that regard. And, and in fact, you know, I guess anthropology is somewhat of a science, but um, that wasn't necessarily what people thought about science and chemistry and, and biology or my path of, of pre-med and, and, you know, what my career was. Uh, and anthropology was an elective you might have taken or avoided <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, exactly. know, at that point. So, uh, but here you are. And, you know, I, I think that that parallels where we are, uh, even with the course that I took, what, you know, how is neuroscience, how does neuroscience relate to business and why, why managers need to understand this. And it's not something that, oh, uh, it, it doesn't fall under behavioral health, you know, problem, right. not, but, but the overlap is incredible. So here we are, and there's so many relevant topics and we, I, I can talk to you all day and I'm, I'm sure you can do the same. Um, there's so much going on right now in, 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 the, in the workplace. So we have this conflict between uh, remote work and uh, in-person and hybrid. Um, so we definitely want to cover human connection. Part of that is about how do we connect people to culture when they're not there. And frankly, we, as Gallup has proven year after year, a decade after decade, Managers weren't very good at that before the pandemic, and this just ripped the Band-Aid off or, or, or pulled back the curtain. Uh, but the but beyond, you know, so we'll, we'll get into employee experience, but this there, there were a couple things that I that just blew my mind this summer in your in your course. And the one was um, the Apple Samsung study that you did. And I think there that just connected for me, and I want to connect the, help connect the dots for other people, of you said a few things. One is brand loyalty. People treat brands like people. And obviously, we some, some brands, some, some brands, some brands. Yeah, good. good. We'll dig, it, dig into that. But I think there's so many parallels there when we're trying to address how do we improve the experience for employees? How do we in, elevate the engagement? But we're doing stuff the same old way. I mean, it's like we're rearranging the chairs on the Titanic when you're sitting on some really, you know, pretty crazy, relevant, uh, revealing research. So share if you can yeah. share a little bit of the background on this Apple Samsung yeah. and, and then yeah. we can go from there. Well, and, I, and I'm and I'm I'm pleased that you connected that to <clears throat> workplace connection. So how to build, you know, the way the way that Apple has built this incredible relationship with their customers. It is exactly like the connection you'd have with um, a child or your romantic partner, right? It's, 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 in, it's enduring. It is, um, it's really love, honestly. Um, people have said that for a while, but we actually proved it. So, you know, for a long time in marketing, there's been this notion that, um, you know, when, when, when we relate to brands that we use essentially the same hardware in our heads that we use to relate to other people. I mean, you know, we talk about brands like they're people, we give them personality attributes to create a brand. It's a masculine brand. It's a rugged brand, et cetera. But is that really how our brains relate to brands? And um, that was an open question. So, so we answered it by, um, and, and we did so by, by looking at the way that people verbally responded to news about their own smartphone brand, either Apple or Samsung, and how their brains responded. So it could be good news, bad news, or neutral news. And perhaps not surprisingly, people responded verbally uh, as if 
you know, their smartphone brand were a person. So for your own brand, you'd report something like empathy. I feel good for good news about my brand. I feel bad for bad news about my brand. That's exactly what Apple people said. And they didn't feel so much for, for Samsung. Um, and Samsung customers expressed the same feelings for their own brand, okay? Uh, they also expressed a little bit of schadenfreude or reverse empathy uh, for Apple saying, oh, I feel bad when I hear good news about Apple and feel good when I hear bad news about Apple. Fair enough, fine. But we had the tools to look under the hood to see what was going on in their brains, the hidden covert mental and emotional processes that were, were ongoing while they, while they encountered this news. And it was really revealing because Apple people are telling the truth. I don't know whether they know that or don't know that, but um, their brain activity was exactly paralleled their verbal reports. That is that their brain showed evidence of joy for good news about Apple and evidence of pain for bad news about Apple and pretty much nothing for Samsung. And the brains of Samsung customers were very, very different. Um, you know, if you're the CMO of, of Samsung, I think you'd be a little worried because you're spending a lot of money trying to build this relationship with customers and yet it's having no effect on their brains. So when Samsung customers hear good news about Samsung, it's crickets in the brain. We didn't see anything. And when they hear bad news about Samsung, it's crickets in the brain. We didn't see anything. The only thing <clears throat> we found evidence of was this schadenfreude. So we found that Samsung customers' brains lit up with joy in response to bad news about Apple and lit up with pain in response to good news about Apple. So I think this is super interesting in so many ways. I think probably the biggest take home message for this audience is that uh, neuroscience can reveal things, reveal hidden thoughts and feelings that you don't even have access to yourself, right? Either you don't know, you can't access, or you don't want to say. And um, that's been the sort of devil in the details for marketing and management forever because Honestly, all of the, the work that we do in those fields is based on self-report. So, you know, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about it? What do you think about that? How much would you pay for that? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Are you, you know, are you creative? Are you, uh, are you disciplined and focused? And, um, and we know that those sort of self-reports are horribly inaccurate, right? And <clears throat> often misleading and, and often, you know, self-misleading. Um, so... That, that's, I think, the beauty of this study. The other thing about this study, though, is it provided a foundation for us. I mean, getting onto this question of connection to a company and a brand, uh, to use that as a, a foundation for understanding what connection to a company might look like. As you mentioned before, you know, company connection, sense of purpose, loyalty uh, is, is, a, you know, is cratering, you know, connection to others in the workplace, cratering over the last decades. And you, you situate that against the backdrop of an epidemic of loneliness in, in this society, in the United States, and deaths of despair. It's, we're in real dire shape here. So if anybody could find a way to build that kind of connection, right, and, and evidence it through neuroscience, so it's not just lip service, it's for real, it's up here, that would be the ticket. And, and you know, I, I know I've been talking for a bit, but I'll, I'll tell you about a study we've just completed. We just wrapped up with uh, one of our corporate partners that was able to show just that. Yeah, I, and so let's keep, keep going on that. I, I I was just sitting back and listening, so I, <laughs> you, you could have kept going. Um, but let's make that connection because, again, there is so, you know, I, I think on every manager's desk or desktop, is a checklist and employee engagement or retention. I mean, we call it by all these different names, but it's how do we have a better employee experience? How do we create that brand, that loyalty? Uh, how do we how do we stop this quiet quitting? How do we get people more engaged? And you know, I, I think it's incredible that when you when you know, I mentioned that Gallup uh, study, that you know, one out of uh, one out of seven people are connected to their company culture and only four and only two out of five managers and leaders are connected to that culture and the blame seems to be put on well that's because we're working that's the remote work problem or the hybrid work problem i mean i think there that's a big element of it you know something like 25 27 percent of of the U.S. workforce is is in a remote or hybrid you know setting, so forty some million people. That's a lot, but um, and I think that has had something to do with it. We've all felt Zoom fatigue. Um, that Zoom fatigue is is the struggle that our brains 
go through to try to read all those nonverbal cues out of each, you know, a three-dimensional human squashed into two dimensions in a little box on the screen. It's just really hard to do. Um, and you don't, you know, you don't have the, and you're, you know, you're, you're forced into time slots. You don't have the, those water cooler conversations. You don't have conversations with lunch. So there's a lot of reasons why that may be true. Um, so we've worried about that. And, and one of the companies we've worked with, um, which is a, I, I love this company, Slalom. They're a, they're, they're like a, what I call them is this sort of, uh, I don't know, crunchy granola uh, McKinsey. You know, they're like the, the touchy feely, uh, you know, good-hearted, uh, you know, Deloitte or something like that. They're, they really, they, they put the, they really, at least their, their values are to put employees first and they put a lot of effort into me you know, measuring the employee experience and employee connection. But, um, you, know, you know, like any, any kind of index like that, any kind of survey, you know, potentially flawed. We don't know whether it's really drilling down and having any kind of validity. So it was kind of one of our challenges was to uh, evaluate that index and to really evaluate, um, in a scientific way, a neuroscientific way, the connection or not lack of connection that employees had to the company and to each other. And so these were everybody, we, so what we did is we, we got these wearable brain monitoring devices, brain sensing devices, and we uh, created a video to train slalom employees how to wear them and how to collect data from themselves at work. And then they would do that and then they would clean them off and they'd ship it to the next person. So we had like 20 of these devices going around the company all over the country. So it, it was pretty cool. We had people in a bunch of different cities and, and demographics, but these people had never worked together in person. So they were all online. Big question is whether the characteristics, the, the neuroscience characteristics of that characterize real world relationships, good relationships actually happen at work and happen at work online, right? And so kind of going back to the Apple Samsung study, one of the you know, one of the features of, of human experience when we really have a good connection with somebody, when you really click, you've got chemistry, what happens is your brains begin to synchronize. So it's this amazing thing called brain synchronies. It's the, in Emile Durkheim's terms, the, the collective effervescence that sort of tingle you get when you go to a, you know, a football game with 100,000 people and you're all in the stands together enjoying it. You could be at home on your couch. Uh, it's not the same thing, right? So we now know what that is, I think. And when our when you see higher brain synchrony, that's indicative of, of friendship. You can predict who's going to become friends later based on whether people show synchronous brain activity while they're watching a bunch of stupid stupid videos. I mean, it's it's kind of crazy. Um, but certain things, you know, it, this brain synchrony predicts trust. It predicts cooperation, teamwork, communication. Right? It's it's quite extraordinary. Like all the good stuff. And we know how to turn it up and we know how to turn it down. So we know how to measure it. It is what, what is, you know, the, the, it is the glue, right, that keeps us connected. Apple customers are in sync with each other, for example. Their brains all resonate together no matter what information they're hearing. You might say, well, that's a little cult-like, and maybe it is, but maybe it's more like family-like, let's say. Uh, we don't see that at all in Samsung customers. So in this study with Slalom, we had people measuring their brain activity. They watched a bunch of videos, but importantly, they watched a promotional video for working at Slalom. This is a video to kind of like, you know, you might see it in the elevator or whatever. Uh, and it's supposed to get you excited about like all the people and the conditions of work and everything. And um, it was really cool because what we found is that um, some Slalomers, their brains were highly synchronized watching this video and some Slalomers were not. That degree of brain synchrony was a linear predictor of how close those workers said they felt to each of the other people in the study. So that tells us two things. I mean, first of all, it tells us that the, the characteristics of real world friendships applied to work relationships. That's number one, never been described. And number two, the, the biological principles of real world closeness also obtain online, right? So people can be working with each other just through this medium, for example, and we, or we could get in sync with each other. And then we would have, you know, that would, we would click, right? So that was really cool. And we were able to kind of dissect that a little bit further, which was, was I think, really neat. So um, one thing we found is that, you know, Slalom has this experience index that is, is measured, like, it has a lot of different questions. They're like, Slalom helps, it cares about, you know, my development or cares about how, whether I'm, you know, helping me to become a better leader and things like that. Brain response to this video precisely tracked uh, 
how people responded on that survey. So it totally validated the survey, which was pretty cool. And then uh, we found some other things out too. So uh, for example, you talked about leaders and you talked about workers and how engaged they are. We found much higher levels of brain engagement actually in workers than we found in the leaders uh, while they were watching this video, like it really wasn't moving them. Uh, maybe they were distracted, I don't know, but that was interesting. We found that, um, and this makes some sense, people who were working in a local market actually showed much higher brain synchrony with each other than people who were working global markets who are, you know, they're not tied to the local culture. They're probably working out of different time zones. You know, they're just, you know, and you can imagine it, right? They probably feel a little bit disconnected um, their work life from the rest of their life. And so there are a lot of really interesting, you know, I think teasers in there that we can, um, that we can pull on. Um, and the final one that I want to bring up is uh, there's a moment in the, in the promotional video that, um, a, a woman turns around, she's got this t-shirt on, a small t-shirt, had this tagline, love your work, love your life. And you see this big spike in brain synchrony uh, in response to that. And it was all built around love. And that was super interesting. Love your work, love your life. And it was just at that moment that Slalom was about to um, embark on a new uh, branding campaign that was called uh, Fiercely Human. Um, and we said, mm, I don't know. I mean, I actually don't know what they've done, but it's like, that might be, maybe that's, you're creating synchrony around love, right? Maybe you should rethink uh, this pivot to fierce. Yeah, and I I don't know if you listened to my, our show uh, last week, right before Thanksgiving, but we actually interviewed uh, the VP of, um, one of the VPs from uh, Reebok. And they, they're building what, what through this courageous conversation, uh, they started this program immediately after uh, George Floyd's um, mm -hmm. incident. And um, it's been hugely successful, but it's basically building a culture of love. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I keep saying is that prior to, you know, certainly the pandemic, but certainly going back my, my, 20, 30, 40 years in business, uh, in the business world. When you talked about love in the workplace, people were still concerned is that, no, 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 we, we, we have a <laughs> policy. You can't right. even date, forget love. You can't even date a coworker. And now we're talking about a culture of love, how things have changed uh, mm. and how it relates to productivity and engagement and turnover uh, and retention um, and, and creativity and ideas and, and all these things. So, what, what a transformation. And part of it is, it's not just somebody's hunch. Somebody just didn't write a book uh, or say, I have an idea. Let's create a culture of love. Now it's backed by data and science right. uh, with, with yeah. what you're doing. And, and I guess that one of the things that, that I found fascinating, and certainly I wasn't fully aware of that. I mean, I, I, I was familiar with wearables and things. And you have a, you know, I mentioned you have a company, Cogware. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had... Um, Paul Zach, and I know you you know Paul Zach, and you know he's got his app and in the middle of he holds up his his app and says, Yeah, we're having we're in sync. You know, <laughs> his circle was closing. Um, but there this you don't need to to send people to a facility to have a functional MRI anymore. That's right. I mean, and that's what so talk a little bit about the wearables, uh, how, how yeah. this is being done in the workplace. I mean, it's super exciting. Um, you know, when I moved to Wharton, um, one of my and and really the whole the, the whole pen gig, but a big part of my my mission, uh, my vision was to you know make neuroscience, make brain insights available to everybody, right? So whether that's at work or at home, uh, whether that's to improve athletic performance, to improve well being, improve performance on the job. Uh, but to do that, we had to, you know, get out of the lab. You have to get rid of all the wires and all of the messy gels and all that stuff. And as it turns out, at the time, uh, we were starting to see the introduction of brain uh, wearable brain monitoring devices. And the problem was is that, and we bought all of them and we tried them out, and we were we were like, oh, we're so unsatisfied. You know, um, I've been measuring brain activity for decades, and it was just not up to the job because they were either highly wearable and comfortable, but gave you really bad signal quality or good signal quality, not wearable, 
not easy to use, messy, et cetera. So we went to the lab and we, you know, we experimented for years and then developed a combination of materials in our, our nanotechnology backed sensors uh, that give exquisite comfort and also exquisite signal quality. I mean, so it's, it's I mean, still, it, it's hard to describe how novel this is. You can actually wear this device, not only move around like this, you can get up, you can walk, uh, and we get no noise, we get no uh, signal interruption. So once you've got that, clinical grade insights, brain insights in a wearable platform, think of all the different ways you could use that, right? So our company has got a one direction that's all brain health, and that's good, you know, clinically oriented, will be FDA approved. Uh, and we're, you know, we're currently working on mental health issues, anxiety, depression, also cognitive decline, Alzheimer's disease, uh, seizure disorders, um, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a, there's a whole range of, of really important um, applications that will, you know, shorten the care pathway, make it more precise, make it easier for people. Um, and you, you can imagine what could be done with that. But the other application space is all... Uh, you know, non-clinical and is, is all around things like performance, um, you know, workplace optimization, right? What we call the responsive workplace, actually marketing uh, is a huge, we're doing a ton of work right now in, in, um, in digital uh, media optimization and targeting using brain signals essentially on the fly, which is like never been done before. It's super cool. Uh, but it really puts us in a position for not, and not, you know, here's the thing where I want to dispel some ideas that are out there. So there's some, you know, critiques out there that like, oh, this is just going to be for uh, major companies to sort of squeeze every last ounce of productivity out of workers. If you're, if they, they, they monitor you and if your, your attention's flagging, then they'll you know, shock you or something to wake you up. That's not what we're talking about at all. I mean, we do this in a de-identified way. Um, to get aggregate data. But the important thing is, is to understand like what do different work conditions, what do different built environments, which is like hybrid versus remote versus in-person. Um, what do those different situations do to our brains, right? And under what conditions are our brains optimally tuned, say for being creative versus, you know, getting stuff done uh, versus, you know, connecting with others. So there's a whole range of different applications in there. But also, I think, include something you brought up earlier, which is, you know, mental health and burnout in the workplace uh, as well. So, so a responsive workplace would take that data and say, okay, this is information, right, that can help guide us to improve the workplace in a scientific way rather than um, based on your gut, right, or something that you read somewhere. So, like I always say, it's, you know, it's not psychology, it's neuroscience. <laughs> I'll get myself off of mute here. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, uh, and uh, we're talking with Michael Platt uh, from Wharton Neuroscience Initiative. Uh, Michael's book, I highly recommend it, is The Leader's Brain. Even if you're not a scientist, don't like reading about <laughs> science, uh, it's really, really easy to read. It really, it's, it's as much of an HR book, a business leader book. Uh, as it is for anyone else. So congratulations of, 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 of getting it down to a level that we all can understand. And stories are incredibly relevant. And some of them you, you heard here um, in the last few minutes, uh, but uh, there's, there's, so, there's so many other ones. And every chapter is really a lesson that managers and business leaders are wrestling with. So I highly recommend the book, but we're gonna be right back with Michael. Uh, we're gonna take a a uh, one minute break. We're going to talk a little bit about adaptability when we come back. I'd like to ask you a question about adaptability and why people are so are struggling with change and, and um, you know, struggling and, and feel stuck. Um, but also want to uh, pick up on uh, one of our favorite subjects, uh, multitasking. If people are only better multitaskers. This was, and uh, besides the Apple Samsung, this was probably uh, the second uh, biggest takeaway I had from uh, your course this summer. We will be right back in one minute. Are your employees feeling stuck and just showing up for a paycheck? Is your workforce working harder to get back to normal than adapting to the future? It's time to help them break their addiction to certainty and develop a growth mindset. Developed by one of the world's top-rated future of work thought leaders, AQ Plus Mindset is a powerful tool to help your employees embrace change adapt faster, and grow on the job. Conveniently delivered to any smartphone or laptop in 
easy to digest five to 10 minute lessons. Managers can sit back and watch employee attitude shift towards growth and innovation in just 30 days. Are you ready to help your employees thrive in this ever-changing, never-normal world? Encourage them to show more grit, resilience, adaptability, and unlock their potential? The journey to a growth-filled future starts with a growth mindset. Visit aqplusmindset.com or call 484-373-4300. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to Geek Skeezers and Googleization. I'm here with Michael Platt from... Uh, Wharton Neuroscience Initiative, and the, uh, Michael's the author of The Leader's Brain. Uh, Michael, you just you just watched uh, the commercial about growth. Um, here, we're we're just uh, 32 days away from 2024, which is frightening. Yeah, yikes! <laughs> uh, and uh, everybody's probably making either making their list of New Year's resolutions. We're going to change this in 32 days. That's the end. We're going to stop whatever we were doing wrong and start these new habits. Uh, or people just said, "That eh, it doesn't matter. I, I, I just can't change. I'm too old to change. I'm, I'm just stuck in my ways. <laughs> it's my boss. It's the environment. Or I'll, I, I'll do it next year. Why, are, why do people struggle so much? What, 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 what's the, you know, and, and again, is it, you know, it's, it's a sense of, um, I don't want to get too deep into the woods here, but we, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this, um, and I was trying to figure it out when we talked about multitasking and we, when we talked about things like um, the default mode network, which I don't want to get into too techie here. Um, but, you know, it's what's going on in our brains that people just have this difficult time. Well, our, our you know, habits are hard to break. And, and uh, it's actually kind of one of the first things brains learned to do on this planet was to repeat things that made the world kind of a little bit better for you. So, you know, you, you, you know, you, you walk over there and you, you find an M&M and you're like, Oh, that was great. And so you're like, maybe I'll do that again. <laughs> you know. Uh, so every, every animal on the planet has a built-in system from, for basically learning to repeat behaviors that led to things being a little bit better. Now, the problem is, is that uh, there's something else that's a little farther away that might take a little bit of, more difficulty, time, energy, whatever, a little bit of change, um, you won't discover it when you're stuck in that habit. So, you know, you've got this incredibly efficient reinforcement system in your brain that's driven by dopamine. That's what dopamine does. People think of it as a pleasure chemical. <clears throat> it's really the satisfaction chemical, and it's there to build habits. Uh, habits are efficient, okay? And so to get out of habits, we have to engage a different system. And that's a little bit, actually a couple systems, but one really important one is the one that allows you to disengage from something that is kind of rewarding, or at least kind of makes things, you know, it's a little satisfying mm -hmm. and, and make the effort to try something new, to go search for something new. So we're smart critters. Other mammals are smart critters, mice, monkeys, you know, dogs. They also have that system. And it's there precisely for that reason, to help you break out of routine and look for something new, but the conditions under which that gets engaged, you know, sort of, it's sometimes hard to get that engaged, right? And you need to know that there's something better out, or at least imagine there's something better out there. Um, and you have to kind of nudge it, provoke it, get it going. And that is just a really, really hard thing to do. Um, now, that kind of behavior change, and everybody's thinking, everybody's talking about behavior change these days, right? How do I get unstuck from routines? How do I look for New Year's, Eve, New Year's Day, excuse me, New Year, New Year's resolutions? Like, oh, I wanna lose weight. I'm gonna be more active. I'm gonna stop smoking. You know, I'm gonna cut down on drinking, whatever. But our old friend, the habits are really hard to break. <laughs> my, uh, but my friend and colleague, Emily Falk, here at Penn in the Annenberg School, who uses neuroscience to study behavior change and communication. Um, what she's found is that um, there's like, you, basically what you've got to do is get outside yourself, right? So sort of, we need self-transcendent thinking. Okay, so when you think about not necessarily just what it means to you, but what might it mean to the people I love? You know, if I imagine the impact on society, or I just even think about something that's bigger than myself, this can kind of get that activation energy going and you're actually more likely to get up and try something new to break that habit and more likely to stick with it uh, as well. 
Yeah, and it seems it's not only personal. I mean, if we're, we're talking about from managers, I mean, how how can managers help? I mean, they, they have all these initiatives and, and we're going to bring in somebody, we're going to hire somebody who has a coach or we're going to have a training in a group or we're going to have morning huddles and they do all these little things. But uh, essentially we're, we're, you know, as you said, creating new habits and, and first of all, breaking old habits is difficult. Uh, and you know, again, you, you delve into this a uh, lot in the book and in in the course. So, uh, and there's everybody's writing about it. So, I, I hope people pursue this. This is well. What I hope to do today was make this connection that mm-hmm. doing the same thing over and over again the way you didn't and reinforcing it or dangling a, a new carrot uh, in front of everybody isn't necessarily going to you know change because now we we understand. The neurotransmitters, how the brain waves, how we rewire our brains, and 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 even focus, you know, how, how we do that. Uh, in, yeah. In way. yeah. I mean, one of the things you you mentioned you mentioned default mode network, which is is you know in in my view that's 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 the system that causes us to explore. It provokes us to explore. So we we've done it. You know, you stimulate it directly even, and you provoke exploration. But, but haven't we ha- haven't we shut that down? I mean, so that 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 curiosity, that ability to explore, to try something new, um, you know, and again, environment has a, a great deal to do with that, because if we try something and fail and then you get punished for it, it's not a really good way to. to, to change well, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, you're so there's a couple of things going on here. One is that um, you can't engage this so-called default mode network. I call it the exploration or innovation network because it underlies search, exploration, creativity, divergent thinking getting outside the box, right? To get that network going, you have to disengage from routine. So the more time you spend staring at a screen, the harder it is to actually engage exploratory thought, try something new, you can't do it. You know, and even, you know, it's even worse if you're picking up your phone, uh, which because for some reason, the way it just the haptic sense of it in your hand is close, it's personal and we're a little more emotional. And our brain has just become glued to it. And so when you're glued to the phone, you're glued to the screen, you're actually, your default mode network is completely uh, shut down and it needs to be active to try something new, to go out um, and explore. So yeah, that's, um, that's tough. And you know, when you talk about the environment and we look at creativity, for example, uh, there are a number of different measures that suggest that you know, you're at your kind of, create a peak when you're five years old <laughs> and then you know by the time you're 18 you're at about you know i don't know one percent of that and then by 31 you're mm-hmm. you're basically at floor and you know we don't know whether that's i don't think it's just maturation i think it's just the way that we as a society do education right because we're basically trying to keep kids sitting still and focused and uh, making sure they get their worksheets done uh, on time, uh, so there's no room to to explore. There's no room to get that default mode network going. And if you couple that with uh, you know the the, the rising, um, really exponentially rising diagnosis of attention deficit disorders of a variety of sorts, and the treatment, the frontline treatment for that is is uh, drugs stimulants that increase dopamine. So they increase that routine, you know, that as a hyper focus, um, which, you know, can certainly be helpful uh, for getting things done, but it crushes exploration, right? It crushes, potentially crushes creativity. And so, you know, I think those two forces coming together, maybe putting us behind the eight ball for the future, all the, you know, all those young innovators that we're going to need to solve the biggest problems facing society from, you know, climate change to, artificial intelligence um uh-oh <laughs> yeah i I'm, I'm just smiling here because uh some of the one of those aha moments some of the the ideas just clicked um from uh, of a lot of the exercises that keep people focused you know we, we want people to grow we want them to be innovative and that's all over their cultures and their values and their training you know and then the first thing they what happens is is how do we keep people focused and and i'm convinced that if managers could prescribe um uh, adderall and other medications to keep add to all their employees they'd probably do it rather than change their own behavior and to change the environment of, of how do you create an environment or cr- not how but creating an environment that encourages growth and innovation but at the same time is 
does allow people to focus and get things done. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think is I think this um gets back to I think something you said earlier, but it but is definitely true, which is making space, making and I think this is across the board. So making space to disengage downtime better, even if you can get up and walk and move around better still if you can go walk with somebody else. So walk and talk. Uh, you know, you're getting, you're getting, you're getting, you're getting exercise, you're disengaging so that the fall mode network is active, so you may be more creative, you're getting social connection at the same time. I mean, that's like, that's, that, that's a perfect recipe for brain health and, and high brain performance. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I'm teaching innovation and entrepreneurship. We just did a, a, a exercise on ideation. And we exposed you know, undergrad students to uh, brain, you know, brain brainstorming, brain dumping, brain walking, <laughs> and and those are you know good exercises. Not just to say, oh, we let's have a creative session, um, but just how do you get people to to detach for mm. a few minutes and to generate those ideas? And obviously, you, you can't brainstorm and brain, you know, brain walk by yourself. <laughs> I right. mean, you can, right. but I think you know what you're talking about. I mean, is, is you know, and I've heard this said before, but I'm probably one of the, the, the biggest, I won't say advocates, but probably the biggest sayers of this is, you know, I get these greatest moments when I'm in the shower, you know, Absolutely. because you can't do anything. I can't pick up my phone. You're, you're sitting there and you're thinking and these ideas come and sometimes it's it literally is just walking away. Uh, our time is like going incredibly faster, Michael. It, it, uh, fortunately, this is like the fastest hour of the week. Um, <laughs> I, I don't want to leave this hanging, and I, we, we skirted around it, but um, two things I, I just want you to comment on. That we don't have to go into depth. One is the left brain, right brain, because I started the show that way, and we can't, I, I pulled that up today because I was looking for a stat for the paper for Perfect Labor Summer. I said, maybe there's a stat about that. And there's, I mean, I can't, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of articles, uh, of, of links came back about how to encourage people to be more left-brained and right-brained and so talk about that just for a second yeah well i mean it is a total myth that has no reality um so there you know that this notion that the left brain is is like all about focus and task execution and it's rational and it works with numbers and the right brain is creative and emotional <laughs> colorful and musical uh it's all just wrong um so, uh, but the metaphor is a little bit right. So the, it turns out these systems are on both sides of our brains. There's a, there's a task network that, that is on the right and the left. Um, and it's all about focus and getting stuff done. And then there's the default mode network, which we already talked about, or innovation network, which is on both sides of the brain. And these two networks are typically like a yin and yang in the brain. So one goes up, the other one goes down. Uh, and they're both really necessary. Right. So you do need to focus to execute at times, but you also need to disengage so you can come up with new ideas, so you can um, explore, et cetera. So there's sort of this you know, back and forth, up and down, up and down. Um, and we need to have that space for those two those two things um, to happen. I think that the notion of left brain, right brain, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it derives from the fact that language is a little bit more localized to the left side of the brain in most people who are right-handed, but it doesn't mean that it's all on the left or all on the right, but a person who has a stroke to the left side of the brain will have more language uh, impairments than a person who has it on the right, unless they're a woman. Um, so that, that, that who have more even distribution across two sides, but all these other functions, no, nah, there's nothing, nothing to that uh, at all. So, so, the, so the biggest takeaway from that is is managers stop hiring for left brain and firing because they have a right brain, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, and and just a really quick one, and we just skirted around this issue before with with multitasking and things. So we, we're really not multitaskers. I, I love how you described it. Uh, I think I picked it up either in the book or, or during the course, is that we're task swift task switchers. Correct. Yeah. We can't. We really can't multitask. Um, it, it our, our, you know, despite the fact that each of us has roughly eighty-six billion neurons in our brains, sounds like a lot. Turns out it's not very much. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 so we're surprisingly limited in what we can do. And we, and, and the reality is is that our brains uh, have evolved to be extremely efficient 
okay? Because our brain consumes a po less power than a 20 watt light bulb, okay? And yet is more powerful than, you know, these computing systems that have, you know, wet racks of servers that are consuming enormous amounts of electricity. So how do our brains do that? By being super efficient, okay? And our brains are efficient by not being able to process everything at one time. There's a limitation on what we can process. You know, maybe it's three, four, five, six, seven items at once. Maybe you can hold in your mind. We know the more options you add to a menu, the harder it is to make a choice. The more things you're asked to do at any one time, the more likely you are to make a mistake. And so what we do is we serially direct our attention from one object or train of thought um, to another. We just, we just can't really divide it. And um, I think that, you know, th this also uh, plays to or speaks to this silly notion that um, attention spans have been getting shorter over the last 20, 30, 10,000 years. Uh, I've heard that even, <laughs> um, you know, now our attention spans are shorter than a goldfish. I don't know how you measure attention in a goldfish, but um, but no, what's 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 happened really is that there are more things that we can, uh, more sources of information in the environment. So your average person has probably got like five, six, seven devices open at once, a young person anyway, and they're just cycling between all these things. So the more things there are, the more rapidly you should cycle. Um, it's just, a, it's a pure principle. It's a mathematical principle about exactly what your brain should do. And then we know this algorithm is baked into our brains and the brains of every other animal on this planet. So they're doing the right thing. Uh, we just need to reduce the clutter. You know, you just need to create a clean environment and, and have one thing at a time that you're focused on. Yeah, so I, I, want, I want to thank you because if the category of multi-distractions and multiple devices at the same time is, is equivalent with being young, I got to thank you for, for that <laughs> um, because by, by, I had to shut down X number of um, way too many windows and, and devices before we came on the air so I can focus <laughs> on this. Uh, one final question I have before we dig into our lightning round is um, I always like to ask our guests, uh, is there something I should have asked you, but I didn't, or you wanted me to ask you, but I didn't? Oh, uh, hmm. wow. Something I wish or you should have asked me. Um, I think we covered a lot of ground, Ira. We did. I mean, I, I, we did. So, so much more. I have so many. I have a long list. Well, so hopefully you'll come back another time. So. You've done a great job. I mean, I guess I would say this. So this is like, so this is sort of like my lightning round. So like brain hacks, you know, for work and for life. And we talked about a number of different things. But look, if there's one thing that anybody out here can, can do, wants to do to make their brains work better and work better for longer, physical exercise. We know physical exercise is critical for the health of your body. Just as critical, if not more, for the health of your brain. So the more you exercise, the greater the vascularization or the greater the blood flow in your brain. And also the less inflammation. Inflammation is a killer. Inflammation is what brings on neurodegenerative disease. It's, it is how stress eats your brain uh, through inflammation. And a great way to reduce inflammation is through exercise. So exercise uh, connect with other people. We know it's really important to combat loneliness. Loneliness is, um, is worse for you than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Uh, so get out there every time you even have a conversation with the barista at Starbucks, that's like getting on the treadmill for your brain. Okay. You're giving a little exercise and, um, it's going to work better and you're going to be less lonely. So, uh, those are two, uh, really critical, uh, take home messages. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, and before we jump into the lightning round, one quick, what was your biggest takeaway? What was your big or the biggest surprise moment you had from the from the summit? What what, what was what was if you can narrow it down to one? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. Um, so our summit was on brain capital in case folks don't know that and, and brain capital. That, that is our asset, you know, as individuals and as societies. It's the, it's the cognitive and emotional resources that we have within our heads under threat from a variety of different sources, technology, you know, loneliness, mental yeah. health. Uh, yeah, I mean, so, one of my questions was about AI and things, but well. Yeah, so another, I. You made another no, show, Michael. <laughs> I, I know, I know. So, I mean, what I, I guess what was so heartening was that, um, and maybe that's surprising, is the how many people really 
cared about this, right? And um, from many different angles, government, private sector, uh, academia, you know, from the perspective of investing in children to build the brain capital of the future, from the perspective of investing in older people to, you know, continue to have them be productive and healthy members of society, from the perspective of the private sector managers investing in the brain capital of their workers to, um, even if they didn't care about workers themselves as people, like that's, that's your bottom line, right? That's your, that's your biggest asset is their brain power. So, um, you know, I think the, making the case for, for investing in brain capital across lifespan uh, from government, from private sector, from NGOs is, is very, very clear. Okay, let's move into the lightning round as we talked about. Uh, uh -oh. Yeah, th these are the trick questions. These are the hard ones. Uh, what's your um, What's your favorite um, song or favorite favorite type of music or favorite band? Wow, I'm such a audiophile. Man, I listen to music all the time. I play music with my boys. Um, I'm a bad guitar player. They're they're talented guitar, banjo, and bass players. So. Wow. Uh, so we do like a lot of, you know, kind of rock country rock Been doing a lot of bluegrass, uh, lately. Um, I have no favorite well, that's song. Up here. I just that's can't, that. I just, yeah, it does. Well, I spent, you know, I spent 15 years in North Carolina as well, but I, but I actually, the weird thing is I learned to play banjo in New York city. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wouldn't necessarily associate that. Exactly. Uh, if, yeah, if, if you, you know, you're, you're old enough to to go back to re reunions or see people that have friends from 30 40 years ago what would they say if we talk to them what would they be most surprised about you uh, i i know they'd be shocked at what i'm doing <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh yeah i think nobody would i, I mean i know they are because i see them now and they're like what you're at wharton you know what are you doing there? <laughs> You're in neuroscience. Last I saw you, you're an anthropologist. You were valedictorian of your class. <laughs> uh, I was not valedictorian of my class. Um, I mean, I was. I'm, you know, I'm kind of a washed-up jock, uh, honestly. So uh, somehow landed on my feet. Yeah, excellent. Final question: If you had a, uh, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? Ooh, that's great. I mean, I would normally want to fly, but you know, as a washed up jock, I've been having these, um, these funny dreams where like I can actually run really fast again and it doesn't hurt. So that would be a great <laughs> superpower to be able to run really fast and, and it have no pain. <laughs> I, I, I thought you were going to go down the path of flying and, and teleporting. We had a lot of no. people talk about teleporting. <laughs> well, teleporting would be great. I have a lot of travel coming up and honestly, that would be, that yeah. would be awesome. Although I appreciate the downtime actually sometimes on a, on a long flight. Uh, it's pretty nice. For sure. Um, really appreciate you being here. Um, we've been running the banners across uh, so that people can see. Uh, for those who are listening, you can get the Leader's Brain uh, either on Wharton's site or probably easier to go to Amazon and, and pick that up there. How, what other ways can people get in touch with you if they wanted to reach out to you, Michael? I mean, you can Google me and I have several email addresses, but you can follow me on social media. I'm pretty prolific on LinkedIn and, and X, um, Twitter. So um, that's a good place to start. And we have a lot of free content also, I should say, on Wharton uh, website that we've created. Yeah, the uh, I'm trying to remember what the name of it was. Um, you had a list of a whole lot of that. We have like uh, nano tools. The and nano tools, longer, yeah. Longer articles. Yeah. So those oh, nano man, tools are really amazing. short. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah. thanks. yeah, they're amazing. And and uh, yeah, so, so many other resources. So uh, I know you've got an incredibly busy schedule. We were talking a little bit about the show. Wish you a, a very happy holiday, safe travels. Uh, we get some downtown downtime. Uh, definitely want to, you know, we'll be keeping in touch and, and love to have you back at some time. Obviously, it's uh, so many opportunities and fields that are changing. This, this field Thanks, is changing. Yeah, 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 it's very dynamic. There's there's so many things. You, and that My book is like so out of date at this point. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's like two years old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it. I, I, I totally get it. So I um, appreciate that. Uh, we want to thank everybody for uh, being part of Googleization Nation, for listening to Geek Skeezes and Googleization. Thanks for helping us be 
occasionally in the in the top 10. Uh, we were number one about two weeks ago in leadership. So, uh, Michael, hopefully this will take us awesome. up there again. Yeah, we're, we're routinely in the top 100 on on Apple, on um, top 10 and good pods. So I appreciate that. Uh, thank you for listening. Please share this. Uh, let other people know about it. And until next week, don't let the shift hit your plans. Thanks for watching Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization. Be sure to listen to the podcast and follow us on YouTube. This show was produced and edited by Hilton Productions.